0: Amen. Got to grab my own stand here today. Hold on one second. Isn't that a beautiful song? Man, I love that. Beautiful song this morning. Now, if you want to open up and follow along in the Bible provided for you, or if you brought your own, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21 today. So we're going to be doing a little time traveling today. So stick your finger in one. We'll have the slide in the hold of the other spot. We'll have our slides available up top. Uh, Now, in case you're a little rusty on the life of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah, I'm going to give a little quick quick synopsis to get you up to speed. Genesis 12, you may remember we were introduced uh, to a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah uh, who were unable to have children because Sarah was barren. She couldn't have kids. Um, Now, even though this was the case, you see over the uh, chapter 12 and uh, following chapters that uh, God comes to Abraham several times, a few times, I think, and he says, hey, you're going to have kids. Uh, you are going to have an offspring. And he doesn't give any kind of timetable on this. He just reassures Abraham this is going to happen. Now, as the years go by, uh, Sarah gets impatient, as many of us do when waiting on God, and she attempts to do God's job uh, for him. And she goes to Abraham and he says, hey, uh, I can't have kids, so I want you to sleep uh, with uh, our servant Hagar, uh, and she can be our surrogate. I can have a child through her, which was not uncommon in those days. And Abraham, in his lack of spiritual leadership, says, okay, if that's what I have to do. Uh, And so Hagar sleeps uh, with Abraham. Hagar gets pregnant. And then Sarah, not shockingly, ends up really angry over all of this, even though it was her idea to begin with. And she gets angry partly because Hagar starts to show a little contempt for Sarah. And so, in return, Sarah starts to mistreat Hagar. The situation is so bad for Hagar that she decides to run away. So this pregnant woman running off, she runs out to the wilderness, and this in verse chapter 16 is where we see our first interaction between God and her. Genesis 16, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, By a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. That was Sarah's name before God changed it. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered For multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. I always love that verse. And his hand is against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, Elroy. For she said, "Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me." And then Hagar returns to Abraham and his wife Sarah as God commanded. Now we're going to jump forward. We're going to get our DeLorean. We're going to time travel, okay? And we're going to go go about a decade and a half forward in time. And we're going to see. You know, as we studied several weeks ago, we saw God fulfill this promise to Abraham uh, and to Sarah, and they had the birth of their son. Anybody? Isaac, very good. Two points for you. Now, we already covered the the joy of Sarah several weeks ago. Now, as that joy in the first seven verses. But now as we get together for a big family celebration, we're going to see family drama stir up because we always know with family celebrations come family drama. Verse 8, Genesis chapter 21. And the child, speaking of Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned but Sarah, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. All right, so back in these days, they would celebrate when a child was weaned, when the, when the child would stop breastfeeding, which was usually around two, maybe three years old. Now, in this family gathering, Sarah saw, probably out of the corner of her eye, she saw Ishmael making fun of Isaac. And Ishmael had been probably around 16 years old at a time. Now, it doesn't say why Ishmael was, was mocking Isaac. It's He's just two. Maybe it was jealousy. You know, we know the birth of a child can always be seen as a threat to the older child. Maybe Ishmael was recounting the times that he heard about God's promise of Isaac, that he wasn't the child of promise. We don't know. But regardless, Sarah had enough right then and there. Mama bear came out, and she decided this whole mixed family thing was not going to work out. So she demanded that Abraham take Hagar, take his son Ishmael, and get him out of town. Verse 11, and this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the count of his son. In other words, Abraham was sad that she would demand this. I mean, Sarah was talking about sending away his firstborn son, a boy that he probably raised uh, as an infant who he, he taught to hunt who he looked forward to marrying off one day. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 13, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite to him. She lifted up her voice And she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened up her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water. And gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to start this message by uh, using the phrase, I want to call a spade a spade here. If you haven't picked this up already, which you probably have by the text, Hagar was a slave of Abraham and Sarah. I want to point this out because I want to make sure that we're not a church that shies away from tough parts of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it was the same kind of slavery that we saw in our country in the early days. There was many different kinds of slavery that were way different. I don't have time to go into all of it. But what I am saying is there was an ownership of Abraham and Sarah over Hagar. I mean, look here, back in, in, in chapter 16, the moment that started all this turmoil between Hagar and Sarah in, in, verse, in verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, that was his name before God changed it, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. It wasn't ask my servant for her permission. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. not that Hagar would necessarily have been opposed to it because it would have meant greater status. We don't know verse 3. So, after Abraham lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian her servant, gave her to Abraham her husband as a wife. Now, even though another woman would give birth to this child, the child would belong to Sarah. Why? Because Hagar is owned by Sarah. And as we said earlier in his great spiritual leadership, Hagar, you know, Abraham agrees to this. And I'm going to just summarize what happens next. The Chapter goes on to tell us after this happened, after this encounter, that Hagar became pregnant. And once she became pregnant, as we talked about earlier, she began to despise Sarah. That means she stopped respecting Sarah, because probably because she had a newfound place, a new status in the community as the one who was able to provide an heir for Abraham. And so Sarah's angry about this. You remember we talked about this before. She goes to Abraham and she said, Let me the Lord judge between you and me what you've done. And once again, Abraham, who is considered the father of faith in Scripture, in his great, not so great example of leadership, yet again, he says, Listen, Hagar belongs to you. Do what you want. And so a lot of versions of the Bible will say that she begins to mistreat Hagar, which is a really pleasant way of probably saying she beat her. And so this drives Hagar to run away. This is it. I'm done. And as we saw, God meets her in the desert. And then as we read, she goes back, she endures more years. I don't know what the relationship looked like. But after Isaac is born, and then Ishmael makes fun of Isaac at the weaning party... If you will, Sarah gets so angry and she says to Abraham, I'm done, I'm gone, get him out of here. And so Sarah, and then God says to Abraham, do what your wife says. And so they give them literally minimal rations, <laughs> like a bag with a loaf of bread, like a lunchable, you know, like a, in, in a one bottle of water and then he send them off. Now, why am I pointing all this out? I'm pointing this out because there's stories like this in the Bible that get people all upset. They read the Bible and they say, look at the Bible. Women are oppressed. Slavery is condoned. Look at the impression, oppression. Look at the injustice. This is why I can't believe the Bible. This is why I can't trust the Bible. This is why I can't follow it. I think the problem is most people have the wrong view of the Bible. They, they think the Bible is a book... Of virtues, a series of stories with good morals for us. So when they come across a passage like this, and passages like Genesis 19, which we all studied a few weeks ago, they're shocked and like, oh, the Bible's gross. It's wrong. It's archaic. It's oppressive. But that's not what the Bible is. As the late Tim Keller said, the Bible is not a book of virtues, it's a book of gospel. The Bible is the book of good news. The Bible is a a record of God's intervening grace into the lives of people. People who don't deserve it. People who don't seek it. People who continually resist it. And then people who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it. And yet, God continues to come to them. He continues not to give up on them. He he comes to them patiently, speaking to them, and helping them, and aiding them, and saving them, and rescuing them again again, and again, and again, and again, and again. That is the message of the Bible. It's not the goodness of man. It's God's goodness despite the lack of goodness of man. It's a book of hope to those who do not deserve And if we don't understand this about the Bible, then we are going to miss the hope that God has for us. And it is a hope that we all desperately need. Because the truth is, in a sense, we're all slaves in one way or another. Some of us are like Hagar. There are times in our life where we feel alone and and we feel mistreated. We feel used. We feel abused. And then there are times where we're like Sarah. Now, some might, someone might say, wait, Sarah wasn't a slave. I would contend she was a slave. Just, it was a different kind of slavery. I mean, let's think about why did Sarah treat Hagar so bad, so severely? I mean, partly it was Hagar... Tempted Sarah with the way that she treated her. But I would contend that there was something else that was driving Sarah's attitude and her actions. As I said earlier, Sarah was a a barren woman. Which means she couldn't have kids. Now thankfully in our culture, I think it's safe to say that generally speaking, women are not looked down on if they could not have children. And I thank God for that. And I mourn with any woman who has had to face um, any kind of callous or, or cold response from her close-knit community around her because she was not able to have children. But I think it's safe to say that those are exceptions and not the rule in our modern-day society. But in Sarah's day, being able to have children it was nearly everything to a woman. It was nearly everything when it came to your worth as a wife and as a mother. Women felt an immense pressure to have lots of children, especially male children who who could work the land and carry on the name. As a man, and I I probably do a horrible job of it, but I can only imagine the immense sense of loss and, and failure that Sarah must have felt all of those years. You've got to remember from the time the first promise that they would have children to the day it actually happened was like 25 years. And Sarah had to look around at all the people around her that were having kids except for her. Now today, things are different. It is about you. That's where the primary importance is now placed. It's not placed on the community like it would have been back then. It's all about being the best you you can be. You have the power. You're special. But what comes with this, in my opinion, is an enormous pressure on the individual to measure up, starting all the way in school. In fact, I, uh, when I was um, at my last church, Uh, I had a gentleman who who runs, um, his whole business is preparing students for like the ACT and the SAT and all of that kind of training. And he was telling me one night at dinner that like half of his job is not even teaching the kids, it's just counseling the kids because of the immense pressure that they feel to perform for their parents, both academically and athletically. And I think this goes on throughout our lives. It just looks different to all of us. Now, I'm not saying I want to go back to to older times where women were oppressed in this way, where they were seen as failures or felt like failures for not having children. But I do think there is some interesting things to observe about women in those cultures that highlight the struggles we face today. For example, historians would tell us that almost it was almost certain that when Hagar and, and, and Sarah were alive, women did not have eating disorders. It was not a problem. And they'll point to cultures that exist today that still, that still operate the way these do, that, that those cultures did. And, and they don't have, and those cultures don't have a problem with eating disorders. It's not an issue, by and large. So, but where do we see eating disorders? You see them in Western cultures where the individual is focused on where you must be your best self, where you're being true to yourself and, and, and ex- going through all your potential. It, it's, it's what's glorified. And so there's this constant thing that you're trying to measure up to. It looks different for men than for women. You see, every culture has a definition of what it means to be barren. Every single culture Every culture that says, unless you are this, you are a failure. And we see it different ways. When I was in school, even stupid—it's stupid to me now, when I was in middle school, if you did not have uh, a, an Adidas bomber, puffy bomber jacket, if you remember those, or nice Nike shoes, you were seen as a failure. I remember this because I told you guys this before. Uh, my dad went out and bought me a generic, you know, like Kmart special knockoff jacket, and the kids ridiculed me for it. And this goes, once again, all through our adulthood lives. Unless you have this, whatever you're surrounded by, whatever your influence in your culture is, if you don't have this, you're seen as a failure. Why do we have phrases like keeping up with the Joneses? See, in traditional cultures, you had to have a family and children. That's how you knew you weren't barren. Right? That was how you knew you had worth. That's how you knew you had significance. But you see, in our modern-day individualistic culture, it's saying to you, look, you, you better be good-looking. You better be successful. You better be smart. Uh, you better be athletic. Or you better be popular. You better be rich. You better be skinny. You better be this. You better be that. It is true of every culture throughout history. There is something that we always feel enslaved to. There has never been a culture that didn't say you have to be this or you're nothing. And I believe some of Sarah's anger and her mistreatment came because she felt enslaved to this idea of being a mother. I mean, look in Genesis 16, 2 again. It says, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that it may be I shall obtain children by her. It's like she's showing her hopelessness here. She's showing what she thinks she needs. Like, I need to have a kid. That's where my significance comes from. There's no mention of God here in in terms of looking to him and finding her worth in him. No, no, I need to have kids. Hagar felt hopeless, but so did Sarah. It's like one of the questions I wanted to throw out today and ask the Lord to show to you is where in your life do you feel barren? Where in your life do you feel empty and you feel worthless because you don't have this or you are not that? My my prayer for you today is that the next time that you're in that place or if you're in that place now is that you would remember that God sees you. Elroy sees you. For this passage is just one example of so many in the Bible where God sees and is with us even when we don't realize it. And it's the way that he comes that gives us hope. I mean, God comes to us even when we're not good or don't deserve it. I'm like he comes to Sarah even the way that she treated people. Because of his promises. And then God comes to Hagar, even though she was not important in the eyes of the world because of his promises. I mean, look at her. She was a, a slave. And, and she only came into the lives of Abraham because of him lying and his sin. She's had a bad attitude with Sarah. She committed adultery with Abraham. She gave a birth to a son who was illegitimate. She now has no husband, she would literally be counted as nothing in the eyes of the world. And yet, she is getting a personalized visit from the creator of the universe, the first and the last, the great I am, the alpha and the omega. A lot of us need to hear this message today because the God that saw Hagar also sees you. And, and if he comes to people, no matter based on their status, if he comes to people not based on their goodness, then there's no excuse that you can give. There's no thought that should take root in your mind that God would not see you. He sees your pain. He sees how you've been mistreated. He sees where you have no strength. He sees your sin. He sees your heartaches. There's no pain you have, there's no trouble you have that he is not aware of. Even though you feel alone, you're not. He sees you. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff that comfort me. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been been given to us. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity that we forget about the most, who is always with us. You see, whatever you're going through right now, God is there. He sees it. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the sin. He sees the struggles. And I love God because he always meets us right where we're at to give us what we need, to give us reassurances, to remind us of his promises, and to tell us which way to head. Now, one thing I always like to remind in a message like this, just because God sees you does not mean he's going to save you from the situation. I mean, there's an amazing thing that God does here when he speaks to Hagar the first time in chapter 16. What was Hagar's solution to this problem? It was to run away. What do we want to do when we have problems? We want to run away. We want to get rid of them. We want to put on our running shoes, and we want to forest Gump it out of town, Right? Now, maybe I've forgotten certain parts of the Bible, but I don't remember anywhere where running away in the Bible was part of the solution. In, verse 16, in chapter 16, verse 9, he actually says to her, when, when she runs away, he says, go back. Hagar, hey, I want you to go back. You know, to the woman that's mistreating you, that's beating you, that's abusing you, go back to her. Why would God do that? Why would he send her back? Well, because, verse 10, he goes, because I want to bless you and I want to make you a great nation. In other words, God's coming and saying to Hagar, I'm going to give you more than you've ever dreamed of that you thought possible, but the way that for you to get it is, is not by getting out of trouble, but it's like it's by staying in the trouble. You see, at the moment that God talks to Hagar this first time, her life is headed for a dead end, because she is right now a fugitive slave, and she is pregnant with Abraham's child. She will never be able to settle down at the very best. She will always be looking over her shoulder, and at the very worst, she is going to be caught and maybe killed for taking Abraham's son. So God says, look, I'm going to give you the freedom that you want, but you have to go back. And then we time travel all the way to chapter 21. And then when Sarah's jealousy reasserts itself, her anger, Sarah, uh, um, Sarah says to, to, to Abraham, remember this, cast her out. I want her and her son gone. And he, and he does it, even though he's sad about it. And then this time, God comes to her again in the wilderness, and they're on the verge of death. And he saves them again. And then this time, now, she's free. She's really free this time because they sent her away. There'd be no one coming after her. My point is that sometimes God calls us to do things and go through things that are extremely difficult. Sometimes we go through things that are extremely difficult of no fault of our own. Sometimes we go through things that are extremely difficult because of fault on our own. We kind of like to forget that part. But God will ask us to go through them because they're on their way to a greater blessing in our life. We can't see at the moment. We can't see the total picture. We have no idea why. But God says, trust me. Do what I've asked you to do. God says to her, I want you to go back into extreme difficulty. And this is the way that blessing is going to come. But she can't see it, but she goes anyway. She trusts God. Do you live that way? When you are in extreme difficulty, first, do you, do you stop and pray and talk to God? Second, do you open up your Bible to see what he has to say? And then do you do it? Do you live that way? Are you willing to stay in the extreme difficult situation? The extreme struggles that God may keep you in because you trust him that he's bringing a greater blessing as you obey him. My prayer is there anywhere in your life where you're trying to run, you're trying not to be obedient, that God would convict you of it right now. I tell you, when you realize that God sees you and that he's going to provide for you, it literally changes how you see everything. I mean, it's like it frees you. You're, you're no longer uh, a slave to fear of what's going to come because you know what? God sees me. He's got my back. You're, you're no longer a slave to culture. Like, I don't have to do, achieve, or be all of these things that culture tells me import are important, right? Right? I don't need to do those things. I just got to follow the Lord. God sees me. That's enough. He's going to get me through. Like Paul talks about as he's writing the letter to the Philippians in jail in Philippians 4.13. He goes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can get through anything. God's with me. It does mean the nights are not going to be long. But it does mean that God will sustain you. And he will restore you and he will see you through the barrenness, and you will be whole again. Once again, not because you were good enough, not because you deserved it. It's so important to see how he blesses Hagar and and Sarah, because it reminds reminds us that we are not a part of the equation. His promises are. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, according to his own mercy. He sees us, he restores us, he sustains us, he brings us through, he guides us because of his mercy, because of who he is. All we have to do is trust and obey. Amen, church.